15. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Ezekiel 3, verse 1. And he, Yahweh, said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill, uh, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech in a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech in a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as, as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard, them, I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of, the, and a, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, and were dwelling by the Chabar, that were dwelling by the Chabar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Let us pray. Father, what we have read... Father, what we have read is your word. It is your most holy, magnificent, and glorious word. And Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to read and to understand. And Lord, as we understand these words, Lord, help us not to be as the Israelites that we have just read, that we would be stubborn and foolhardy. But Lord, help us to take the scroll that you have given us. May we taste it and see that your word, that it is indeed good and sweet and a balm to our soul. Lord, for the difficult things that we will see tonight, prepare us, help us. And Lord, guide us in your strength and through your spirit that we might become more and more focused upon your glory and less and less about ourselves. Lord, help us to love your Christ through your word. And we ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. We come again to look at the nature of Ezekiel's commission as the Lord's prophet. Last week we looked at the call, the congregation, the consultation, and the content of Ezekiel's commission. 
This week we will continue to look at Ezekiel's ministry, but I hope to draw out a few more inferences for us to have in view as we approach the actual content of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. So, we can just add these elements uh, to what we saw last week. It's a continuation of the nature of Ezekiel's ministry. We have three main headings for us tonight, and again, I'd like to alliterate. Uh, so we had three main points. The surprising sweetness, the resolute res- uh, reception, probably should have chose a different <laughs> letter, and dismaying departure, the surprising sweetness, the resolute reception, and the dismaying departure. So with these points in mind, let's begin to look at Ezekiel's surprising description of what he says about God's message to Israel. Our first point the, uh, is uh, Ezekiel's surprising sweetness. Starting in verse 1, we read Yahweh's command to Ezekiel, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, son of man feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. This section of Ezekiel is not shocking. It's not surprising as our point likes to make. uh, Because it was merely that uh, Ezekiel was eating a physical scroll. It's not shocking to us that Ezekiel is eating a real scroll. This is a vision. So physical actions take on metaphorical nuance and dimensions. The actions of eating the scroll communicates what we saw last time concerning Yahweh's command to only speak the word that he was given. Ezekiel includes this metaphorical description to communicate that he will only, only speak the words that are provided to him by Yahweh. So again, the shock is not that Ezekiel ate a scroll. For a vision, this is fairly standard stuff. We see this throughout the Bible. But the shock comes here. The shock is how Ezekiel describes the taste of the scroll. He describes it as sweet. From last week, what the content, uh, from what we saw the content on the scroll, uh, written on the scroll of God's message to Israel, are, remember, words of lamentation, of mourning, and of woe. A better word to describe the taste of, uh, of Yahweh's message to Ezekiel to give to the people would not be sweet, but it would be bitter. This is a better description because bitter often describe the curse of those under judgment. Sweet is a kind of abnormality, especially from what we saw last week. It's surprising. Remember that Ezekiel was being prepared for war by his God Yahweh. He was chosen to preach the coming judgment of King Yahweh to a rebellious people. God had to strengthen and encourage Ezekiel not to be afraid of the rebellious people due to their utter disdain for God and His Word. Even in our passage tonight, God repeats the nature of the crowds that Ezekiel was going to preach to. In verses 4-7 to of our passage in chapter 3, we read this of the crowds. And He said to me, Son of man, Go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you, are not to, for you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel? Oh no, 
They will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel had a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Again and again, God is re-emphasizing the severe nature and corruption of the people of Israel. In verse 5, he compares Israel to a hypothetical foreign nations with foreign tongues. And in this comparison, Yahweh favors the other nations because they would at least listen to Ezekiel's message, even though they would not understand. You see, Israel was so far gone in their sin. They're so far gone in their sin that a prophetic word from the Lord will not be tolerated by them. Israel would despise Ezekiel because they despise Yahweh. This is why they are worse off than any other foreign nation. Israel's rebellion didn't stem from the lack of understanding of God's word like a foreign nation would. Israel's rebellion stemmed from their willingly stubborn hearts against the God that they were to serve. They despise their covenant Lord. And this is why Ezekiel is called to preach against them as God's enemies, as those who are as foreign nations around them. And as we saw last time, Israel's rejection of Ezekiel and his prophetic word would act as a sign that Ezekiel's message was indeed from God. Remember that Israel would reject the message of God because they did not want to be rebuked by judgment. They did not want to be chastised for the rebellion that they so loved. And so Ezekiel's prophetic message of judgment would match the severity of Israel's rebellion. From what we saw of Ezekiel, from what Ezekiel and as we as his readers have seen so far, this was not a message of comfort or joy to Israel. This was a severe rebuke and indictment against Israel's sin. This is not sweet. It is bitter. Since this horrible reality of judgment against rebellion came so thir- can be so thoroughly understood by even us, the most simplest of readers, why does Ezekiel characterize God's message as sweet. If we can see so clearly that Ezekiel's message is clearly an indictment against sin, against Israel, against rebellion, why then sweet? How could this message possibly be understood as sweet? Well, let's make some four ways into that. I believe what Ezekiel is doing here in his is what he's doing here in this introduction who is leaving his readers a little Easter egg. Ezekiel, being a skilled author, gives a slight foreshadowing of what we will be seeing in coming chapters. Though God's rebuke is severe at first, God does not leave his people to wallow in their judgment. God will provide the hope of restoration to his people, and this hope would be comfort to the people afflicted in their sins. I won't go into it now, Because we will incrementally see God's promise of grace as we go through the judgments of Ezekiel. And I don't want to deflate what we'll see there. But we should at least note here, brothers, that even in the darkest chapters of judgment, the shimmer of restoration and salvation can be found. And so then a point of application that we can make of this surprising sweetness of Ezekiel 
is that we should not lose hope in the midst of our chastisement or our trial. For us who are at the beginning of Ezekiel's mission, as we read his mission, we see this heightened, terrifying language of God as he is coming for warfare. And we also see a timid and weak Ezekiel. But by the end of the book, we will see Ezekiel bravely bringing forth the word and we will read of the complete cosmic renewal under the dominion of King Jesus. A comfort to afflicted people indeed. This same movement that we'll see throughout the book can be said of those... Let me say that again. This same movement of this growing crescendo of God's grace this growing crescendo of God's grace, as we see throughout the book, this is not just literary here in the text, brothers. It's literally true for us as well. This same movement, this growing crescendo, can be said for those who are currently experiencing, experiencing the effects of their sins or for those who are under a trial. Chastisement. What, what Israel was going through because of their sin. Chastisement is God's painful pruning process in our sanctification. By coming aware of our sins as we grow in sanctification, we often feel hopeless that we will not finish the race. Too many brothers I have heard this from, they get bogged down in their sin and they're discouraged. There's just so much sin left to mortify, they say. There's just so much more rebellion residing in my heart that I was not aware of. Or for those who are under trial, and, and, and just a quick definition for trial. A trial is, is a time of testing to produce godly growth. Not necessarily because of sin, but to, to produce more and more holiness. But for us, sometimes it might be too difficult. Your trial, this trial of your sanctification process may too, be too much to handle. The frustrations of dealing with the difficult circumstance or difficult people make you just want to find a way out of this testing. You might ask, why is God bringing me through this? Why this particular trial? What does he want me to learn? Well, for either of you, brothers and sisters, because typically we're under these two in our Christian walk. You're either being sanctified from your sin. You're being pruned your chastisement, or you're going through trial. That's the typical pattern for the Christian life. So for either of you two uh, brothers, for those under trial or for those struggling in sin, take hope. It may feel that you don't know where to go. You may not know how to overcome your sin or that trial. But somewhere in the midst of your sin or trial, at this moment, brothers, you can still take note of God's surprising goodness. Brothers, take note of that goodness now. And as you eventually overcome that trial or mortify that sin, you will know that your God was with you at the very beginning, just as we see here with Ezekiel, just as we see here with the surprising goodness. Even in the midst of our own lives, we can see the same trajectory at work we still see that surprising goodness even in the darkest chapter of our own lives. Another way to put my point is this. 
just as, our, just as we are to be attentive to Ezekiel's hints of grace in his prophetic ministry, we must be keenly aware of God's hints of his goodness towards us in the midst of our failures and our trials, brothers. As you conquer that sin or you overcome that trial, be sure to remember that God's goodness was with you at the very beginning. Don't be surprised at the end. Take surprise now, even when it seems so dark. Brothers, take note of that surprising sweetness as Ezekiel did, and it will strengthen and encourage you for the work that God has called you to in Christ Jesus, and that is your sanctification. Take hope, brothers. Take hope. So then, moving on, by taking note of the goodness of our God, even in the midst of the darkness, we return to Ezekiel's ministry and the dynamics that play within it. We come now to our second point. I'm going to keep doing that. I apologize. Ezekiel's resolute reception. Ezekiel's resolute reception. Again, Ezekiel was called to a high and difficult task as God's messenger of judgment. His audience were rebellious sinners, resolute in sin against their God. So God must prepare Ezekiel to be even more bold and more confident in his word and to comparison to Israel's sin. In verse 8 we read, Behold, verse 8 of chapter 3 of Ezekiel, Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Last week we saw that God used the language of not being afraid as an allusion to Israel conquering God's enemies in Canaan. And the same is true here. Ezekiel was to have a war mentality when he goes against Israel because they are now God's enemies. The imagery of flint can be used in either a positive or negative way in the Old Testament. Israel's stubbornness through the Old Testament was characterized as being hard as flint. But on the other hand, other prophets used the same imagery of flint, the hardness of flint, to describe their resolute devotion. This imagery of flint to describe their resolute devotion to speak according to what God has revealed, such as Isaiah 50 verse 7. So then, in order for Ezekiel's ministry to be effective, the Lord takes it upon himself to make. Notice that. It's the Lord doing this. The Lord makes Ezekiel harder or more resolved to his word than Israel was resolved to remain in their sin. He is preparing Ezekiel for the high task. But resolution is not only what Ezekiel needed for an effective ministry. Ezekiel needed the very word of God. Yahweh continues to speak to Ezekiel in verse 10. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears, and go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Again, the effective ministry of Ezekiel was not dependent upon the obedience of, of Israel. Ezekiel's ministry would be effective if and only if. Hear this, brothers. Ezekiel's ministry would only be effective if and only if 
He spoke the word of God alone. But notice what God commands to Ezekiel before he goes to the exiles to proclaim the word of God. Notice this, brothers. In verse 10, God says, All my words, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. Notice how personal this command is. Receive in your heart, hear with your ears. Ezekiel was not only to repeat the words given to him, he was also to internalize it for himself. We have seen Ezekiel already internalize the message of Yahweh by eating that scroll, right? He had the word. Ezekiel had God's words in his mouth. He had the content in his mouth. But here in this passage, God's message was to be internalized in a different sense. It's not merely having points in his mind. Ezekiel was to understand and apply this message to himself. And the only response to God's message, any response to God's message is this, brothers. Repentance and faith in the one who has called you to receive these words. That is the only response. That is the only biblical response to God's word, whether judgment or blessing. Repentance and faith in me. Rather than just be a mere recitation of a lengthy speech, these words of God were to convict Ezekiel as well. Though this was a primarily sobering message for Israel, Ezekiel would only be effective or faithful in his ministry if he believed and internalized this message for himself. In order to be resolved for the task at hand, in order for him to go against the enemies of God, Ezekiel must be convicted that these words are true. Brothers, we are commanded to the exact same fidelity presented here to Ezekiel. God himself has called us to internalize his message. And from that belief in and response to God's message, we are resolved to proclaim his message to others. In 1 Thessalonians 4, and if you would, please turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. Paul writes these marvelous words to believers who have heard the gospel call. So again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Please read, read along with me. This is Paul speaking. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, but with much joy in the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he has raised from dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Brothers, this is essential to grasp. 
Christians are not those who can simply rattle off a few points about God's salvation. They're not those who can rattle off a few points about doctrinal orthodoxy. No, far from it. Unbelievers can do that. Rather than rattle off a few points, Christians are those who are rattled by God's message of salvation. Because the Thessalonians received the message of God with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, they were prepared for effective ministry. And like Ezekiel's ministry, they received the Word of God and proclaimed it. Even under much affliction, But this made them all the more resolved to follow Christ. Verse 7. The Thessalonians believed in the message about Christ. They believed that God converts sinners from worshiping dead idols to serve the living triune God. Verse 9. They believed Christ was salvation from God's wrath against sin. They believed that Christ gives us hope of the resurrection to live in glory forever with our God. They believed the gospel. Brothers, they internalized the message of God's coming wrath. And they internalized the message of God's gracious and glorious provision of His Son to save them from that wrath to come. And because they received and internalized this message about Christ as the truth of God, because they believed the Word, brothers, and because they were resolved to proclaim Christ, their ministry flourished. Read with me again that their devotion to Christ about Christ, uh, their, 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 their devotion to the truth about Christ, the truth that by faith and trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, He secured eternal satisfaction for our sins before God. This truth transformed the world around them, as Paul says in verse eight. And please notice this in verse eight of First Thessalonians chapter one: the word of the Lord, meaning the gospel sounded forth from you, the Thessalonians. They had ministry in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is Paul speaking. We need not say anything. Brothers, you know you have an effective ministry when the Apostle Paul isn't doing any of the heavy lifting. This was good faithful gospel ministry. And it's because they received and were resolved in their belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ that He saves sinners from the wrath to come. Brothers, may we at Grace Baptist be as faithful as the Thessalonians here. May we internalize the message of God's coming wrath and His message of, and the message of Christ's propitiation for those who believe. May we be resolved to proclaim this message despite any affliction that may come, either just as Ezekiel or as the Thessalonians. And may the world around us come to know the glory of the gospel message that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Brothers, receive this message yourselves. Know the gospel, love the gospel, understand the gospel. And resolve in your hearts to proclaim the gospel. May God bless us in our ministry in this regard. Amen? Amen? Amen. So then, brothers, Ezekiel was called to internalize God's message for himself. He was called to proclaim it. 
Though our ministry should resemble Ezekiel's reception of God's Word and his resolve to preach it, we must still recognize that God's message to Ezekiel was not explicitly the Gospel message, at least not immediately. Though there will be shimmers of hope that would culminate into the cosmic renewal, which we would understand to be Christ, uh, Him being the head over that cosmic renewal, all Ezekiel would have at this point in his ministry, in the first opening chapters here, what we saw last week and what we've seen tonight, all he would have at this point are words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And so when the Lord departs from Ezekiel, Ezekiel is left to internalize a message of God's coming judgment. And this brings us to our third and final point, brothers. God's dismaying departure. God's dismaying departure. In verse 12, we read, of, and this is verse 12 of Ezekiel 3, if you'll turn there with me again. Ezekiel 3, verse 12. We read of God's departure from Ezekiel's presence. Then the Spirit lifted me up, And I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. And from it was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. I won't repeat what we saw last time, but do remember that whenever the Lord moved, it was as if an army battalion was coming along with Him. And the language of the earthquakes and the wings that we saw evoked this imagery of warfare, ultimately. Again, what Ezekiel was describing in this vision is God ready for battle. So when Ezekiel hears a voice from behind saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. Notice, from its place. We should understand this as almost an angelic voice announcing that the Lord is leaving Ezekiel's presence for a purpose. The Lord is leaving for the, pur- for the purpose of this, that He was preparing for war. He was talking to His attendant, He was talking to His prophet, and now He's going back to bring back His angelic cord. That's the idea being presented here. Yahweh's departure is a sign of Him rousing His angelic army and of Yahweh preparing to send His prophet to announce His message of destruction. In verse 14, Ezekiel describes what happens after Yahweh's departure. And we see how Yahweh guides His newly convicted prophet to go to the rebellious audience at the Chabar Canal. Ezekiel writes after verse 14, 14, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. In this verse alone, brothers, we see some interesting dynamics taking place within the mind and heart of Ezekiel. As someone who had just beheld the glory of the Lord and His army, and as someone who had internalized His message of the coming judgment, Ezekiel had a lot to process, right? Right? We also see the Lord was actively preparing His prophet during this intermediary time. We see that it was the Spirit that lifted and sent Ezekiel away. But we still see at the end that it was the strong hand of the Lord after this initial encounter that caused Ezekiel to be dismayed. Ezekiel describes 
this dismaying situation, this experience and His somber spirit in these words. I went in the bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. The terms bitter and heat are used numerous times to describe someone who has been afflicted with a curse by God. It's not that Ezekiel was cursed by God, but that God's terrifying might, His message, and His purpose for Ezekiel was so weighty that it caused Ezekiel to become dismayed. So then we see Ezekiel dismayed because the Lord's departure was a sign of the rousing war, of the coming war. And the Lord was constantly upon Ezekiel to preach and to prepare Ezekiel to preach the message of judgment. So in verse 15, when Ezekiel comes to the exiles at Tel Aviv, which was simply a place, a town near the Chabar Canal, all Ezekiel could do was sit. He has, behold, he has beheld the glory of God in the array of His might with His angelic host. And He has the message presented before Him. Judgment is coming. And He sits in the midst of that rebellious people. All Ezekiel could do was sit. And he writes, And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Better translation for the term overwhelmed is probably desolated or palled. This word ultimately communicates the idea of one being completely undone by God. Ezekiel has, to come face, has come face to face with the living God arrayed for war, and he has lived to tell the tale. But more than that, he has been commissioned to be God's messenger and ambassador, ambassador of judgment against an unholy, rebellious people. It would have been enough for God to simply reveal his glory to Ezekiel for him to be undone. That would have been enough. As we saw, he fell before him multiple times. That would have been enough for him to be undone. But God chose to enlist Ezekiel for a higher and more terrifying calling. Ezekiel's response is a natural one. Him just wanting to sit and process. And this is a natural process when you come face to face with the Almighty God. With this said, what we can take away, what, what can we take away from this dismaying departure, brothers? What do we do with Ezekiel in spiritual agony as he waits for God to speak further on his judgment against Israel? He's waiting for the Lord to speak. Well, there's many things that we could take away, but I want to go this route. I believe this shows us something about the call to ministry in general. And I want to spend a moment here more to think through some things with you, brothers. As someone who does not see the call to pastoral ministry in my own life, I can only speak with little or to no experience in this area. But this point applies to this office as well. So, seminary students, listen up. I had you in, uh, in view. As someone who serves in the church, as I know people who serve faithfully in the church, I can speak openly about those other areas of service that do not deal with the office of elder. With that said, for those who are not called in pastoral ministry, which is the majority of you here, we can learn something about the nature of any ministry from Ezekiel in this, in this point. 
Whether it's a deacon, a deacon's wife, a pastor's wife, a Sunday school teacher, or devoted layman, no matter what your service looks like, brothers and sisters, all Christians are called to ministry or to service in Christ's church. And we can learn from Ezekiel's experience here. Here's what we can learn. Christians involved in any form of ministry in Christ's church, Christians must be stopped by the Lord. Christians must be stopped by the Lord. Here's what I mean. I don't mean that you don't need to do service. Far from it. I'm not saying that, Pastor. From our third point, we saw that Ezekiel is profoundly and utterly changed by his encounter with the Lord. And as we said, Ezekiel was undone. But remember how he characterized himself at the beginning of Ezekiel, chapter 1, the first three verses. Ezekiel was among the exiles at the Chabar Canal. He was among them. He was with them. He was of them. And he was a priest for the exiles. From this, we should take away that Ezekiel was just like the rest of Israel, completely rebellious and under the judgment of God. But by God calling him and revealing to him his purposes, by revealing his message to him, by revealing his message to him, Ezekiel was profoundly converted by his God. He beheld his God. He knew his God. And he repented as we saw him worshiping God. Also, Ezekiel was a priest, but he wasn't a holy priest. He was a priest for the rebellious people. He wasn't a priest that just happened to be there with the people. He chose to be in that location, most likely. He served the people. He served the rebellious people, but not the Lord. Ezekiel didn't serve out of devotion to Yahweh or because he had a profound call in his life. Nothing like that, no. He served just because that happened to be the status quo. He was there because his dad was a priest. But after Ezekiel is confronted and converted by the Lord, his ministry takes on profound transformation. His service was no longer for the rebellious sinners, but his service was now oriented, oriented towards God. Yes, he still served Israel as a prophet, but he did this in devotion as one radically transformed by God himself. You see, by God coming down to reveal himself in his glory, Ezekiel was stopped by the Almighty God. Ezekiel was stopped from serving in vain pursuits for a rebellious people. Rather, Ezekiel was stopped and transformed so that his ministry could be transformed to give all the glory to God. Brothers, my point is ultimately this. Wherever you find yourself in service, ask yourself this question. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this activity that seems so mindless or empty? You could be like a hypocrite and vainly say that you do things for the glory of God, but inwardly, you know that that's not true. Brothers, allow me to get a little bit more personal with you. Why do you sign up to teach for Sunday school? Why do you sign up for fellowship meals? Why do you come out here uh, to work on a hot summer's day for a church work day? Or come up suddenly and have to deal with a pool of water? 
Why do we toil and spend for things that seem so ordinary and that even unbelievers can do? Let me push it a little bit further, brothers. Do you serve in this church because you have a mentality like this? You may think that you need to serve because I need to help out and pull my weights. Okay? I need to serve because the pastor is hounding me about it. You could do it. I need to serve because my kids need good socialization. I need to serve because I kind of like these people and they're my friends. Maybe. I need to serve because I want to build a name for our church. I need to serve because we need to figure out a consistent church schedule. That's really prevalent right now. I need to serve because I have expectations as a church officer. I need to serve because my skills and technology or artistry can be useful to these folks. I need to serve because I'm in seminary. I need to serve because I'm the pastoral assistant. Brothers, most, if not all of these, are actually good benefits and reasons to serve. It's good to socialize your family or to help out or to even listen to the counsel of your elder to participate more. But these are all completely pointless, brothers. This is all completely pointless if we have not been stopped by our God. There are churches all around the world filled with people willing to serve. And that sounds strange to us because we think, oh, no one wants to serve. Now, plenty of people want to serve. People want to do as they see fit. They serve because that's the status quo. Just as Ezekiel did before his encounter with the Lord. They serve because this is the thing to do. It's the thing to do if you're in the South. It's the thing to do in a small church. It's the thing to do. The status quo. They serve because that's the status quo. Brothers, I plead with you. And I plead to my God. May such a servant spirit as this be far from us. We don't need this kind of servant spirit. Not this kind. Don't serve the church of Christ because that's the status quo. Don't serve Christ's bride because you get a benefit from it. Don't serve Christ's body just because you think you can make it better. No. Follow the path of what we've seen from Ezekiel. Follow Christ and serve His church because you, come, because you have come face to face with the glory of Christ in the gospel. Serve your God and His people by being radically transformed by Christ. Serve your God because your God has called you to do it, to do so, and to worship Him. As Ezekiel patterns for us, brothers, be stopped by God's glory. Behold His glory. Take Him on it. Be astonished by Him. Be dismayed if you need, to be, if you need repentance. Be dismayed. But brothers, serve because you see His glory. As Ezekiel patterns for us, be stopped by God's glory. Be decimated by God's glory. And you will punt, and as you ponder His glory, as you look into and you, you, you relive the glorious day of your salvation, or you see the glorious truths being made conformed into your own life, 
Brothers, you will be enabled to serve your God in sincerity, as we will see Ezekiel do next week. Brothers, don't serve because of the status quo. Serve Christ your King because you know His glory. That's what it's all about. Over and over again, this is what we come back to. It's Christ's glory. We don't serve because we're just friends. We serve because we serve our God. If you know the glory I speak of, brothers, then don't serve mere men. Don't serve mere people in the pews. Serve the living God by serving His beloved people. Serve your Christ by loving His body. Love your God by loving His people through service. And may this spirit of service be with us all our days. And may our God be glorified in our service to Him and to one another. With this, brothers, let us pray. Father, we thank you that your glory does marvelous things in the life of your people. Lord, we love the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what transforms us from serving vain things, such as the status quo, to serving and living for the triune God. Lord, thank you for this reality, for we have behold your glory as revealed to us in Christ Jesus through the power and the preaching of the word of God and his gospel. And it's in that hope It's in that joy and it's in that word that we take our rest. Lord, please be with us and give us rest indeed. We ask this in your son's holy, holy, holy name. Amen.